Welcome back. This is the second, second panel as part of the conference. Um, in this session, in this session, we're going to drill down on one of the issues that we discussed a few minutes ago. We're going to talk about uh, the future of innovation, whether we are stagnating, whether we're near the singularity or something else. Um, are all the good ideas already been used up, or do we have a bright future ahead of us? Our three speakers in this panel, uh, in the order in which we will have them speak, are Robert Gordon, who's the Stanley Harris Professor of Economics at Northwestern University. He's one of the nation's experts in macroeconomics, inflation, unemployment, Federal Reserve policy, and all that good stuff. And more recently, um, but, but also for a long time, especially interested in the short and long-run behavior of productivity. He's the author of a leading textbook on macroeconomics and a member of the NBR Business Cycle Dating Committee. Whenever you see those charts with those little gray areas indicating recessions, uh, Bob is one of the key people responsible for that. Second speaker is Eric Brinjolfson. Um, he is the Schuschel Family Professor of Management at the MIT Sloan School. He's an expert in the economics of information, technology, and organizations. Steve Oliner, our representative of the vast right-wing conspiracy, um, I'm just, I'm, I'm kidding, <laughs> is a resident scholar and co-director of the International Center at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also senior fellow at UCLA Center on Real Estate um, after a long career at the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, D.C. He's an expert on monetary policy, real estate, uh, and as well on the relation between IT and productivity. So with that, uh, we'll get started. Bob, you're up first. You're up first, yes. Is that okay? Well, it's good to be here. Um, I've lost track of how many times I've debated Eric in the past. The, the big deal was our debate at TED, which is now almost two years ago. And sometime over the next year, I expect that Eric's speech will have been viewed one million times. He's, he may not keep track the way I do, but uh, he's up to 960,000 page uh, views of his speech. I'm lagging about 100,000 behind, so I'm up to about 870,000. The reason I know this is because a friend of mine said that on the first day of high school economics for his son, who's a high school senior, he was assigned to see our talks, and that shows how deeply this debate has gone into the uh, broader sphere. Uh, the question today is whether innovation is speeding up or slowing down. And for me, the edge of the debate between us comes on page 44 of the Brynjolfsson McAfee book, The Second Machine Age, where they declare, quote, we're at an inflection point leading to faster growth. And so my talk today is, are we at an inf inflection point leading to slower growth? My problem with Eric, maybe he'll, he'll be different today, but usually there is no hint in uh, Eric or Andy's debating points uh, about the link between the wonderful new inventions that they talk about and the past or present growth of some aggregate measure of economic performance in the economy. For instance, total factor productivity growth. And when they say we're speeding up, I'd like to know compared to what? compared to the last 10 years or the last 50 years. Uh, so I'm looking for numbers, and I'm going to provide them uh, for you. And we're going to go back a lot earlier than in the previous session to look at post-war economic growth in the perspective of a longer horizon. 
you'll hear a lot of examples from Eric about exponential growth in big data, small robots, 3D printing, driverless cars, and many innovations that are happening right now and soon to come. Uh, and I will compare the usefulness of such innovations with some of the ones we've had in the past. My position in a nutshell is summed up by a blog somebody told me about called Taking Robert Solo Seriously. And I suggest that if you uh, Google that blog, you'll find some very interesting features on economic growth that come out almost every day. Bob Solo in 1957 taught us that the best way to talk about the importance of innovation is to examine the history of total factor productivity growth. And so that's what I'm going to focus on today, the long history and the short history of TFP growth. And I'm going to argue that the most important innovations happened a long time ago. That's already been previewed uh, in John Fernald's talk and Martin Bailey's very good remarks that we just heard. Over the past two decades, we saw the digital revolution cause TFP to spike, but just for a short time. You've seen those data from both Dale and John, and you're going to see a, a slightly different version from me today, all reaching the same conclusion, that we had a remarkable re revival of both labor productivity and TFP growth, uh, but it didn't last very long. So to understand the history of TFP growing, going back to the 19th century, we need definitions of the three industrial revolutions. The first one happened between 1770 and 1840, uh, and it had a continued impact through the end of the 19th century and consisted of the steam engine, railroad, steamships, and a general transition from wood to steel in manufacturing and almost everything else. The second Industrial Revolution, the invention started around 1870, continued uh, into the 20th century. They had a continued impact up to 1970, and I think the fact that 1970 seems to be the period when the post-war productivity slowdown began, I believe that's because the big impact of the Second Industrial Revolution inventions petered out. The thing that's extraordinary about the Second Industrial Revolution is that there were so many dimensions, and I can give you at least five. Let's take them one by one. Dimension one, electricity with light, elevators, machines inside and outside the house with home appliances, uh, portable electric tools. Sta uh, standstill electric tools in factories, and then air conditioning inside and outside the home. Dimension two, internal combustion engines, motor vehicles, and air transport. What I call EICT, that is Entertainment, Information, and Communications Technology. Before 1940, we had invented the telephone, phonograph, movies, radio, and television. Then a fourth group bringing together chemicals, plastics, antibiotics, and the foundations of modern medicine. And then fifth, an utter change in working conditions from unbelievably harsh, uncomfortable working conditions on the farm and in the factory in the late 19th century to something much more pleasant in an air-conditioned office uh, already uh, very common by 1970. And similarly, enormous improvements of what was household drudgery into the modern age. Since 1960, we've had the EICT revolution on entertainment, television has gone through uh, successive phases, from color to cable to time shifting to high definition to streaming. Information technology has gone from mainframes to mini computers to PCs. Then that all important late 1990s marriage between communications and computers with web browsers and e-commerce. Communications has brought us mobile phones and smartphones, which are 
uh, mobile phones combined with very powerful, very small computers. Then we've had productivity enhancers like ATM cash machines, barcode scanning, and lightning fast authorization of credit and debit cards. And we have lightning fast free information, vast amounts of information freely available to the public. That's already happened. That's not about to happen. That's already here. And within firms, uh, unlimited instant access to all sorts of proprietary information. Well, I'm going to submit that I information, the Industrial Revolution number three, has failed the TFP test. It failed it in two different ways. First, I'm going to show you some new series on TFP growth that goes way back and shows that the growth of TFP since 1970 is only one-third of what it was in the previous 50 years. And the failure number two of the Third Industrial Revolution is that the Third Industrial Revolution only boosted TFP growth for an extremely short a very temporary period of time in the late 1990s and early part of the last decade. So my startling conclusion for today is, might the productivity impact of the third industrial revolution be almost over? Question mark. And here I emphasize productivity impact, as Martin did, as John did. It's not whether the inventions are going to stop happening. It's whether the productivity impact of the inventions has already largely occurred. Now, if you just look at the growth of per capita income over the last 120 years, it looks like everything is fine. This is a very wide-angle lens. It goes from 1890 to the present, and the red line is per capita real GDP. The green line is a trend that is simply drawn through 1891 and 2007. It grows at 2.1% per year, and it looks like we have an amazing record of coasting along that 2.1% growth rate. But let's slice off the first century. Let's start the same graph at 1992 instead of 1891. And here you see that the red line for actual does not hug the green line very closely anymore. For instance, you'll see that the red line for actual real GDP per capita went soaring above the green trend line back in the late 1990s. And since 2007, we have a very sorry story. This is very much like, uh, I believe it was, uh, either John or Martin showed a graph that looks very much like this. It's like an open jaw. The green line goes up, uh, but the red line pays no attention to the green line. We have this uh, enormous sagging downward of real GDP per capita. We're only slowly recovering. And if you just do the log difference between these uh, lines, the red actual line is 12.5% below the pre-2007 trend line. And in previous presentations like this, I've argued for a trend line something like 0.8 for per capita real GDP growth, and we're even below that uh, by about 2.5%. But that per capita real GDP does not measure innovation. TFP is what measures innovation. And so we need to make a two-step transition from real GDP per capita to labor productivity and then to TFP. And we do that with a standard productivity identity that output per capita, that is Y over N, is equal by definition to labor productivity, that is output per hour, Y over H, times hours per capita. And we're going to see that the very regular growth of output per capita was not mimicked by regular growth in productivity because we've had enormous fluctuations in the growth of hours per capita. 
Uh, the TFP series that you'll see here are new, so it gives me a chance to advertise my forthcoming book, Beyond the Rainbow, the American Standard of Living Since the Civil War. And for the experts in growth accounting here, let me just identify what this TFP series is based on. Uh, real GDP, BEA back to 1929, linked to Kendrick before 1929. Aggregate hours, BLS back to 1948, Kendrick before then. Capital input, BEA back to 1925, and then Kendrick. But capital has to be treated very carefully. And there are three innovations in the book's treatment of capital. First of all, because GDP includes government output, we have to include all of government capital, except for military weapons. Those have to be carefully excluded. We have to allow for variable depreciation or retirement to take account of the Great Depression and World War II. That adjustment has absolutely no impact on today's talk. It all happens in the middle of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Then finally, the BEA capital series adds structures and equipment together dollar for dollar, and Dale has taught us long ago we don't do that. We need to use user cost weights. And so my transformation of the BEA's numbers mimics the BLS post-war and gives ever-growing weight to equipment versus structures. So once again, how do we explain this steady growth in per capita income with the uh, irregular growth in productivity? And this is a, a, a chart, looks very much like one of John's charts, except it extends back much earlier. As John did, the width of the bar is proportional to the length of the time intervals. Here red is real GDP per capita, and you'll see in the first three intervals it's, it is centered around 2.1. But productivity growth is behaving very differently, and that's blue. So the blue bar for the first period, 1890 to 1970, uh, is growing at close to 2.4%. The difference by definition between the growth in per capita income and productivity growth is the growth in hours per capita. There was a small downward shift in hours per capita growth uh, due to, of course, the work week shrinking from 60 hours a week to 40 hours a week during this period. The middle period, the next period, 1972 to 96, had continued rapid real GDP per capita growth, much slower productivity growth, the difference being not just the baby boomers entering the labor force, as we heard in the previous session, it was the time that the women came into the labor force. That was the overwhelming reason that hours per capita grew so rapidly at almost half a point per year between 1972 and 1996. Then we have what Dale calls the boom, others call the productivity revival, with productivity growth soaring very briefly above its pre-1972 rate for just eight years. And then the last decade, where we have per capita real GDP slowing to half a point, productivity slowing to 1.1, and a very substantial decline in growth of hours per capita, very consistent with what we already saw from John and Dale, of minus 0.6% per year. Now, if you take this and just look at the blue, we have this familiar pattern of high, low, high, low, but for very different intervals of time. And to take exactly the same data you just saw, I find it very informative to cut the periods differently. And this is the first innovation you're seeing today. Instead of breaking at 1972, let's inform ourselves on what happened before 1972. And it really is rather striking. 
we have a very symmetric pattern. We have all the productivity growth is centered between 1920 and 1970. And this is productivity growth. We haven't gotten to TFP yet. The first period was one and three quarters. Then we had uh, productivity growth of 3.1 in the middle period, and then back to about 1.65 in the last period. Uh, so the question is, why did it take so long for the second industrial revolution to generate outsized productivity gains? Paul David, I think, had the right answer. There was a long delay. He focused on electricity, but there was a similar long delay in figuring out how to harness the internal combustion engine to what previously was a simple horse-drawn buggy. It required lots of innovation um, in the powertrain during those years before uh, this impact happened. After all, Henry Ford only invented the assembly line in 1913, and this first left-hand period ends in 1920, only seven years later. The real impact happened after uh, 1920. Now here we're going to transfer, uh, just as Dale did, to, from labor productivity to TFP, as John did as well. Uh, the yellow slice we take off is for labor quality or human capital. And these data, as uh, in John's presentation, come straight out of Golden and Katz' uh, 2008 book. Then we deduct for capital deepening. And what's remarkable here is that for all three periods, we're taking out about the same subtraction for education and for capital deepening, leaving TFP as the black bars down below. And since we're subtracting the same amount, this pronounced difference between the middle period and the two shoulder periods uh, is very pronounced. And here's what it looks like. TFP growth of more than 2% in the middle period, almost, not quite triple that in either the pre-1920 or post-1970 periods. This is what it looks like if we break down post-1970 First of all, into a 22-year interval up to 94, and then five-year intervals from 1994 to the third quarter of 2014, like John's charts, mine are current, up to the most recent quarter. And here you see very strikingly just no movement at all of TFP growth except for that one remarkable period, which in this timing is 1999 to 2004. And very interesting, as Martin pointed out, this upsurge of productivity growth during that period did not happen in Europe or Japan. Here's labor productivity for the same periods. You'll notice there is a difference in that the uh, periods 94 to 99 and 04 to 09 did a bit better because there was a lot of capital deepening happening there. The period, this is very much like Alan Blinder's column in the Wall Street Journal last week. Uh, the last five years, 09 to 14, have been truly lousy for productivity growth. Well, uh, I think the reason for this is that the productivity impact of the Third Industrial Revolution is largely over. What's old about it? Well, we had Amazon 20 years ago, Google 1998, Wikipedia 20, 2001, uh, iTunes 2001, Facebook 2004, all of these things invented 10 or more years ago. The digitalization of library and parts catalogs was over 10 years ago. Office work was revolutionized by 2004. Barcode scanning, the ATM machine, credit card authorization, all that happened 15 or more years ago. What's new? The iPhone and the iPad. They may have created a lot of unmeasured convenience, but they have not made a big impact on productivity. I see stasis everywhere I look. Eric looks at the world in a very different way, and uh, he'll tell you about that in a minute. 
I asked the associate chair of the uh, Northwestern Economics Department, what was different about the staff um, in, uh, at Northwestern uh, in, at the moment in 2014 compared to 1998? And he said, absolutely nothing. We have the same number of people doing exactly the same thing, and that's 16 years later. I see stasis in retail stores. I see shelves stocked by humans. I see meat and cheese sliced at service counters. I see barcode authorization, uh, barcode checkout, credit card authorization. In medicine, uh, electronic medical records have made their way largely through the larger types of medical organizations and hospitals. And there's little or no change in what nurses and doctors actually do in the hospital. Higher education, we have cost inflation, a continuing ramping up of administrative staff ratio to instructional staff. And we have stasis in consumer electronics. Let me just read you from the New York Times, their evaluation of the latest consumer electronics show, January 2014. Quote, this show was a far cry from the shows of old. Over the years, it has been the place to spot real innovations. Then some of the innovations were given with their years. This year's crop of products seemed a bit underwhelming by comparison. And the New York Times goes on to quote the editor of a gadget website. This industry that employs all of these engineers needs you to throw out your old stuff and buy new stuff, even if that new stuff is only slightly upgraded. So there you are again, just a reminder of the TFP history. And here are some additional reasons why that spike in the late 1990s is not going to be repeated. Number one, the growth of manufacturing capacity. That peaked in the late 1990s. It went down to almost zero in 2010, 2011, and 2012. This is capacity in manufacturing. Here is the percent of value added in all of US manufacturing comprised of ICT industries. As Martin pointed out, this is now almost all gone offshore. And here is the big deal. The top is familiar. The red line shows the rate of change of the BEA's computer deflator. It's deflator for ICT equipment. It reached its peak rate of decline around 2000 at minus 14% a year. And as Dale pointed out, the reason why computer technology prices are not going down the way they used to is because Moore's Law is almost over. In fact, Moore's Law is obsolete. Uh, here's a different chart than Dale's showed. This is straight off the Intel website. Uh, the, the, this is transformed from what's on the Intel website. The dashed line is Moore's Law. The number of transistors on a chip doubles every two years. The doubling time went down to 14 months in the late 1990s, early 2000s. The doubling time reached more than six years in 2009. Now it's running at about four years. So we have absolute demonstration that the technological revolution is, is coming to an end, and its productivity effects certainly have come to an end. So here's my last slide. Uh, I can summarize by saying I come in almost exactly in the middle of Dale's pessimistic and baseline cases with potential GDP growth of what, around 1.6, with productivity growth around 1.2. And I think given the steadiness of TFP growth over the last almost 50 years, the real uncertainty now is not about TFP growth. It's about capital deepening. Are we going to get investment back up so that it's growing as much faster than labor hours growth to make these predictions come through? Thank you. Thank you very much. Next speaker is Eric Brinjolfson.
Thanks, Jeff. And, and thanks also to Brink for assembling just a, a remarkable group of people for this. It was a, it's a real honor to be included alongside uh, people like uh, Dale and, and John and Steve and, and Bob and, uh, and Martin, the group here. And I agree with very much what was, what was said in the last panel. I don't agree with everything that Bob just said. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, I will, especially this panel, I think our, our, our task is to talk about the future of innovation. So I will um, uh, uh, highlight some of the places that we agree and some of the places that we disagree. And I think that, that uh, Bob uh, was modest in, in suggesting that that TED talk had something to do with starting things. I think it was really him writing about the, the stagnation and the slowdown, and, and there was this uh, classic cover here that was inspired by uh, one of Bob's insights that uh, we had some really wonderful innovations a while back. Um, and uh, the question is whether we'll ever have anything quite that useful again. And uh, I've pulled together a number of quotes about, you know, that, that, that kind of highlight this, this attitude that uh, we're passing over a great divide, that the great inventions were in the past century, um, that it's not just the Great Recession, but that we have a permanently reduced rate of growth going forward. There's stagnation, long-run deficiency, um, that there's nothing like those, those innovations that, that we heard about, the railroad, the telephone, electric power, and the automobile. Although, what's interesting is that as I was going through the literature, these quotes are actually from the 1930s and 1940s. So there was a, a, a long tradition of people being pessimistic, especially in the throes of an of a, uh, economic downturn. And um, the nice thing is we know what happened after this, this, this uh, these predictions of stagnation. We had, as Bob just showed, some of the best decades in human history of economic growth and technological progress. So um, I take away from that that we need to be somewhat modest. I'm going to try and be modest about what, what we know about what's going to happen in the future. Um, so my agenda is to first make, a, make the point that, that I think Bob already made actually very nicely, which is that the future of innovation, this panel, is not exactly the same as uh, long-term economic growth. And let me just stipulate that I agree with pretty much everything that was on the previous panel, uh, where Dale, for instance, pointed out that there are some demographic trends, Bob mentioned them too, that are just cooked in there. We already can predict with near certainty uh, how many 18-year-olds are going to be in the United States 18 years from now, or how many 65-year-olds are going to be 65 years from now. And uh, that tells us a lot about those, those characteristics. But we're going to talk about innovation, which isn't the same as long-term growth, but it's a, it's a key component, and arguably the most important component. And some of the stuff that John Fernald pre presented, for instance, it was really the, the key driver that differentiated uh, some of those different periods. So we'll focus on that. We'll talk a little, I'll talk a little bit about what we can learn from past trends and just to preview, I think actually not that much, <laughs> but I'll, I'll show you why. I'll, I'll talk about why I'm optimistic. I think that's my, my uh, the the task I was assigned here. Um, and it mostly has to do with some things I see in the technology, um, which is, uh, and I, as Bob predicted, I will, I will talk about some of those. But I'm also concerned, and that has more to do not so much with the technology, but with our organizations and our institutions that aren't, aren't keeping up. Um, so that first point, just very quickly, uh, I agree that there are these headwinds. I think Bob now has four instead of six, but, but broadly speaking, these, these demographic, educational, other things. Uh, faltering innovation is, is not something that I think we can, we can say is happening. Um, we can look at what's happening with productivity growth. Um, this is right off the BLS website, and some people see a downward trend, some people see an upward trend. These are the past five um, uh, business cycles um, and what, what's happened in, in labor productivity. Taking a slightly longer point of view, um, you can see, uh, just if you look at the level here, 
you see sort of a, a, the, the faster productivity growth. Then there's a slowdown in the in 19, 1970s that Bob pointed to, an acceleration uh, again in the 2000s, and then maybe a little bit more of a slowdown there towards the end. Um, but the reason I want to put this up this way is Chad Severson pointed out that this uh, mirrors pretty closely what happened in the earlier part of the century. Um, this is when not the IT revolution was kicking in, but this is the electricity, what Bob calls the, the second industrial revolution, a cluster of innovations. And again, you actually had a bit of a slowdown there as electricity was rolling out. I don't think anybody today would say that electricity wasn't a remarkable innovation or was kind of a, a, you know, a dud. Um, but it did take a while for it to kick in. People like Paul David described how factories had to be completely reorganized. And it took literally a generation for one set of factory owners to retire or die and, and a new generation to come in and say, hey, we can do things differently. And then productivity took off a bit. It did kind of slow down again there towards the, the 30s, and that was when we, I gave you those quotes from the, uh, the stagnationists. The term secular stagnation was, quoted, was uh, coined then. Um, afterwards, the dotted line is, is things actually took off quite well. I don't know whether the past is, is prelude. I mean, I certainly wouldn't make that prediction, but it, it just shows that it, these things have happened in the past. Um, so how can you make predictions? Well, it, it is difficult to make predictions, especially about the future, and I'm going to be somewhat humble, but nonetheless, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Um, the way I don't think is, is going to be that useful is to just take the past trends and extrapolate them. You know, look in the rearview mirror and say, what we saw in the past X years, five years, is what's going to happen in the next five years, or past 10 years, is what's going to happen in the next 10 years. I haven't seen a lot of scatter plots with a lower correlation than these. Um, these are the five-year labor productivity or total factor productivity. Or my favorite, which I was disappointed John didn't talk more about, um, his utilization-adjusted uh, total factor productivity. And you can look at it 10-year periods as well. Um, needless to say, if you run a regression on those, they're not statistically significant. Uh, the R-squares range from about 5 or 6 percent to 0.003. So, um, you know, I know you can do much better than just doing a correlation, but I think ultimately another tack that I'm going to take is to look at the innovations that are already in the pipeline and think, okay, what potential do they have? Now, again, we have to be humble because tech economists aren't always great at assessing how powerful they will be either. Here's a, a quote that's, that's been used a lot. I'm not going to say who it's from, but, but there were those who thought that the internet wasn't going to be any more important than the, uh, the fax machine. Um, so... Despite that, I'm going to go ahead and, and say I'm, I'm somewhat optimistic. In part, it's because of what Bob said about the improvements in the exponential improvements in Moore's law um, that have continued for a while, bounced up and down. Even with something as you think as precise as measuring transistors on a chip, I know there's some disagreement. I believe we'll hear from Steve about some different perspectives about whether that's slowing down or speeding up. Um, I'm not sure what's going to happen in the future, but historically, nothing has improved faster in history than computers doubling every, whatever it is, couple years uh, or so. The steam engine doubled in, in, in efficiency about once every 75 years, so a little slower exponent there. But it's not mainly about Moore's Law. I don't think that's what the, the main story is. It's about the uh, nature of in, innovation and the fact that this uh, mindset of it being low-hanging fruit, I think in the introduction, Brink mentioned that, that some people think of innovations as, as sort of the low-hanging fruits that we're plucking isn't the right way to think about it. I think of innovations as combinatorial, and that when we innovate, we don't use up the innovations. We create more building blocks for additional innovations. Each time we invent something, we make it easier to invent other things. And also, as John said earlier, um, we're having so many more brains connected now to this 
global community of knowledge. And they're not just tapping into the knowledge, they're adding to it. People in China are developing better machine vision systems. People in India are working on curing cancer. And we're all, of course, going to, to benefit from those innovations. And that gives me cause for optimism. And also, the things that people can work with, um, they're much more interchangeable now. Uh, many of them, the building blocks are digital. And digital goods have three unusual characteristics. They can be copied at almost zero cost. Uh, each copy is an identical replica of the original. Each of them can be distributed anywhere on the planet almost instantaneously. You know, free, perfect, and instant weren't characteristics that we had for most goods and services historically, but they're standard. They come automatically every time things are digitized, and more and more of the economy is being come, becoming digitized. Not just media and music, but you go to retailing, manufacturing, finance, almost every industry, maybe someday education, someday soon. And that means you can do things much more quickly. I had one uh, undergraduate student who wrote a, an app, and uh, within less than a year, millions of people were using that app and apparently benefiting from it. He said it took him about two weeks to write that app. And why could he do it so easily? Because he built it on top of Facebook, which was built on top of the internet, which was built on top of electricity and so forth. So it wasn't that it was harder for him to make that innovation. It was much easier given those other building blocks out there. So that's a different kind of a mindset. The other one that, that uh, I was pleased to see John Fernald also uh, mentioned briefly um, is what's happening in, in machine intelligence. And here, there's been a real revolution over the past 10 years. I spend a lot of my time going and hanging out with my friends at the Computer Science and AI Lab, the Media Lab, out in the West Coast and elsewhere. And uh, there are three areas that historically have been thought of as uh, uniquely human capabilities. One is just uh, dexterity. Being able to pick up this clicker is something that historically machines would have a great difficulty with, or just walking around a room, a crowded room, or, or driving a car. Um, the other is language, um, that was thought of as a uniquely human capability. And the third is solving unstructured problems, problem solving. And there have just been a sea change, an inflection point, if you will, in all three of those uh, areas in the past decade or so. So yes, we do have self-driving cars. I got to ride around one in, in uh, Northern California, and uh, it's uh, worked as advertised. We have uh, robots that are doing factory work. Baxter uh, works for $4 an hour now. In fact, they just came out with a new version of the software that I guess is twice as fast. Um, and it can do the kinds of tasks that literally hundreds of millions of people are doing in factories. When I visited factories in, in Guangzhou, I saw people doing tasks that Baxter can easily do now. And not surprisingly, people like Terry Gao at Foxconn are, are buying uh, hundreds of thousands of robots. They say they'll buy buying millions of these robots. Um, many of them are already in use. Uh, Santa's little elves these days uh, are these orange squat things that are delivering and working on your packages uh, in Amazon from another robot company called Kiva, also uh, near Boston. And these uh, warehouses have almost no people in them uh, because the robots can do so much of the work now. And this is the next generation robot. Uh, it's Atlas. If you go visit the uh, computer science and AI lab, you get to talk to uh, Atlas if you'd like. And uh, Atlas is the response to the new DARPA robotics challenge. The last one was to make a self-driving car, which people thought would be impossible, but that worked out pretty well. Atlas is a little more ambitious. Atlas actually can walk up to a vehicle, get inside, put its hands on the steering wheel, foot on the accelerator, drive a short distance, get out, go up some stairs, go across a field of, of rubble, pick up a hose, attach a nozzle, open a door, go up a stepladder, a whole bunch of other simple tasks like that. And it doesn't take a ton of imagination to think, you know, if you were an entrepreneur or a factory manager or ran a warehouse, 
what could you do if you had a, a machine, a robot, that could do all those discrete tasks? How could you put them together in different ways to create value? Now, let me be clear, Atlas does not yet do all those things, but Gil Pratt, the head of uh, DARPA, says that the teams are way ahead of where he expected them to be in terms of uh, accomplishing those kinds of tasks. That was the first category, the physical category. The second one is language, and I think we've all experienced this. It used to be that you know talking to computers was something you would only see on, I guess, on Star Trek, science fiction. Now you walk outside and you routinely see people talking to their phones, and half the time you're not sure whether they're talking to another person or they're literally talking to the machine and expecting it to understand what they're saying and carry out their instructions. It's still kind of clunky, but you can do simple things, you know, ask Bob Gordon's age or what the weather's going to be tomorrow or whatever you want to do. Um, Skype um, this month announced that they are enabling a real-time translation. Honestly, if you guys want to call your friends in Germany or China, uh, you can use the beta version of Skype. Again, something I would have thought was just science fiction, but, but now is doable. Again, it's not perfect, but it, it, it's passable. Um, it can even write stories, so narrative science. Uh, here's a news story about, about Apple, and you could read about the text, but the most interesting thing is actually the byline. So go to Forbes and you read some of the stories. They're written by robots. Tens of thousands of these stories are being written by robots at Forbes about sports stories. They take the raw numerical information about the event and then they convert it into text that they think will be of amusement to uh, us humans. Um, and then the third category was problem solving. And let me touch on that a little bit. Um, my favorite example here is probably uh, what's happened with Jeopardy. Dave Ferrucci, uh, the father of IBM's Watson, showed me this chart, and it was just, just remarkable. I want to share it with you. These are all the people who were champions at Jeopardy. They're quite good, so you can see they get most of the questions right. They have a high accuracy. They're also pretty aggressive. Um, this was Watson when it first came out. Um, it's a line, not a point, because they basically have a little dial that says, you know, be more aggressive or be less aggressive. So Watson could be anywhere on that brown line there. Not very impressive, not very good at answering questions. And you guys all know that Jeopardy has questions from a wide variety. It could be about geography or physics or music or history or um, current events. Um, but Watson had one characteristic that none of the humans had, which is a remarkable ability to learn. For instance, they told Watson to go read Wikipedia. So Watson read Wikipedia. And it read lots of other information. It got much better and better and better. And every few months, they came out with a new version that was better and better. I mean, it wasn't monotonic. Apparently, at one point, they had Watson read the Urban Dictionary. Uh, which, if you know what that is, uh, they just turned out that was not such a good idea. Uh, <laughs> Watson started answering questions with, uh, with profanity, so they, they kind of wiped that part of... Uh, not good to have a six-year-old reading the internet unsupervised. So, uh, but that's not, it's not just for winning money at Jeopardy. Watson is now working in call centers. There's a, there's a South African company that's using Watson to answer questions in call centers. It just came out literally just a few months ago. Um, it's doing, uh, there, there are similar technologies doing legal problems, and Watson has a version that's doing legal. So um, I've talked to some of my friends in, in New York expensive law firms. They say they're literally hiring fewer new associates because some of this grunt work of going through documents can now be done with automated systems. There are technologies like this that are being, doing a better job of diagnosing diseases. Vino at Coastal, the venture capitalist, thinks that within five years, um, uh, machine uh, diagnosticians will be better than human diagnosticians, and that we'll be going to them for second opinions or even first opinions. And here's this vision of hooking them all up to... Uh, to Siri. So everybody, a billion people in the world will have a, an expert human diagnostician that they can uh, talk to, at least for those kinds of information. I got to say, 
I find that a little optimistic. When I go to the West Coast, I'm considered the pessimist. I know I'm the East Coast, I'm considered the optimist. Um, but um, but there's, there's a range of, of possibilities there, and you can make your own judgments about what you think the economic impacts of some of those will be if they come anywhere close to what, they're, what the potential is. And I think more broadly, if you step back a bit, we can say that we think that um, the Industrial Revolution, the first and second ones, um, were mostly about automating muscle power, physical work. And we are now having a set of technologies that are automating the control system, what Carl Smith calls a control system, um, mental power. And it's hard for me to believe that that won't be at least as big an impact on uh, human well-being as the Industrial Revolution. And of course, the Industrial Revolution was the really big inflection point in human history. So I'm, I'm kind of optimistic about it. And I think if we had this Cato conference another 10 years from now, I hope we all get invited back, um, we'll be scratching our heads that here we were at the dawn of a period we were actually getting machine intelligence, machine learning, perhaps the greatest innovation in human history. And we were talking about, well, there's nothing really interesting to be in, uh, invented going forward. Um, now, I am concerned. Let me just wrap up with a couple of quick points about that it's not that where I am concerned, it's not so much about the technology, it's more about our organizations and institutions keeping up. Just as it took decades for us to keep up with electricity, now I think some of the changes are happening even more rapidly. And it has some, some negative effects because ultimately most of the investment in the economy is not that little tip of the iceberg, as Dale and others pointed out, of IT investment. It's what's enabled by it. It's the organizational intangible changes. And, and many of us have, have written about how much larger those are, how much harder they are, to, to, the, to make those cultural and organizational changes. In fact, if you look at, at companies, you see it's just astonishing to most economists how much variance there is in uh, business practice. Companies are not at all near the frontier. There's a huge amount of variation there. Um, and it takes a long, long time for the invisible hand or for, for visible managers to figure out how to uh, uh, eliminate that. In a way, actually, that, that could be considered good news because what it means is that even if technology, the IT part of technology froze, if you know, those companies all fell off a cliff and we didn't have any more of it, we would have, I think, decades of innovation in business processes and organization just to catch up with the technologies that already are available today and to uh, close that, that gap between the, uh, the laggards and the frontier. Um, although I'm also concerned that, that one of the main ways this kind of tends to happen is not from companies changing, but from new entrants coming in. And I'm sure we'll hear later today from Bob Lighton and Haltewanger and others about this uh, seeming fall in business dynamism, which is a bit of a mystery. But that's also an area of concern, because that's really what we need to take advantage of these technologies. Um, and if we don't do that, we're not going to be able to... Um, have the kind of uh, rate increases in living standards, not because the frontier isn't advancing, but because we aren't uh, living up to that. Um, and if you, if you look at what I think people are concerned about today, there is a sense of, of disappointment. Um, I don't think it's so much that this blue line, the productivity, isn't growing fast enough. It has to do with the red line, median family income, and there's lots of other metrics of it. Uh, that isn't keeping up, and, and the, the Tea Party is angry, the Occupy Wall Street people are angry, lots of other people are angry, because they legitimately see that the median income is lower now than it was a, a decade or two ago. And yes, you can quibble about some of the deflators and, and adjusting for things, um, but I think the broad picture remains there. So ultimately, going forward, and I think much of the rest of this conference is going to focus on a, a different grand challenge, not the grand DARPA grand challenge that gave us the self-driving car or the, the robot atlas that I showed you earlier, 
but one that is focused on our skills and our organizations and our institutions. That's where the gap is going to be. And it's great that we have these technologies uh, giving us these opportunities, but the, the organizational institutional changes that um, make them uh, to fulfill their promise is what we really need to be focusing on. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Our third speaker is Steve Oliner. Thanks very much, Jeff. And let me just join the chorus in thanking Brink and Cato for putting on such a fantastic program. It's, it's an honor to be part of it and to be on the podium with Eric and Bob. So Bob and Eric have cogently laid out the pessimistic and the optimistic views about what might happen in the future. As probably befits someone who spent nearly 30 years at the Federal Reserve Board, I'm going to take more of a middle road, skeptical, <laughs> perhaps less sexy um, take on things. Um, and in the process, I'm going to try to address three specific questions that um, reflect work that's both, uh, both recent work and ongoing work that I'm doing with David Byrne from the Federal Reserve, David's here, um, and Dan Sickle from Wellesley College. So the three questions are, first, um, does IT explain the speed up of productivity growth in the mid-90s and the, and the slowdown a decade later? Um, the answer is definitely yes. Um, the presentation is on the first panel, Bob's work. Uh, there's a strong consensus here. Um, given how much we've talked about this already today, I'm not going to spend much time on it as I go through my slides. But the answer is yes. IT has been central to the swings in productivity growth. Not the whole story, as Martin said. but definitely central. Second question, have innovation in, and price declines in the semiconductor sector stalled out? This is an important question because uh, advances in semiconductor technology have historically been the engine that have driven both the development and the, and the diffusion of IT throughout the economy. And if there really were stalling out, that would be a very unfavorable development. My answer is going to be no, there hasn't been. Um, and this is going to be a place in the talk where I'm going to really delve in some detail into measurement uh, questions. Um, there are, I think, some serious measurement problems in the national accounts in places that you would have thought were pretty well measured and that I think are giving us a misleading signal about what's actually happening here. And finally, um, what are the prospects for a return to significantly faster productivity growth? My answer is extremely uncertain. Um, Eric expressed a certain degree of uncertainty about the future. I'm going to take this a step further. And the most definitive statement I'm going to make in the talk is the following. Economists stink at forecasting trends in productivity growth. We have no predictive ability. I'll show you some slides that, that demonstrate that. We can predict demographics, yes. But when it comes to layering on top of the demographics what's going to happen to innovation and what that's going to mean for productivity growth, that is not our forte. We do modeling and we do careful data analysis. Looking at a crystal ball, you don't get trained to do that, and we're not good at it. So in terms of where I come out, I, I think both Bob and Eric have sketched out plausible um, views of the future, which could come true. Um, but the confidence bands are enormous. And I'm somewhat in the middle, maybe a little closer to Eric, but really more in the middle. So the first question is really this question of growth accounting, which, as I said, I'm going to go over very quickly. Um, David, Dan, and I have a standard growth accounting framework. It's a model that's a little different than the models you've heard about today. It focuses very much on a, a 
very detailed decomposition of the IT sector. Um, but the results are basically what you've seen already, which is that um, from the mid-70s to the mid-90s, we had a period of slow productivity growth. We had the boom for about a decade, and then we reverted back to slow productivity growth. And if you try to associate that with the determinants of productivity growth, capital deepening, uh, total factor productivity, changes in the composition of labor, what you find is that information technology was really the driver, both productivity in the part of the economy that produces information technology and the benefits of its use um, in uh, industries throughout the economy, particularly the IT-intensive industries. And then all of that basically reversed in roughly 2004. So I'm not going to go through these numbers in detail. I think it's pretty much a well-established view in the profession um, that IT has been central. So now let me turn to the second question about what's happening in semiconductors and these price measurement issues. So the, the red line is actually, um, I think, the same line that Bob showed you about computers and peripheral equipment prices in the NIPAs, um, which shows that uh, after having fallen rapidly in the late 90s, They've now, those price declines have now slowed to a historically slow rate, hardly declining at all. And a separate series shown in blue for semiconductor prices, specifically the microprocessors that go um, into uh, computing equipment. Uh, this is a splice of several different series, but from 1998 on, it's the producer price index for microprocessors. Here, too, you see roughly the same pattern. The rates of price decline are much greater, but the same general slowing of those declines to a point now where these prices are hardly falling. So I think it's important to ask, are, are these series right? And the answer I'm going to give you based on the research that we've been doing, which is focused on these semiconductors, is that the answer is very, very unlikely. So let's, let's just do a little bit of background work on what's happening in semiconductor technology. Um, Bob showed you a picture of um, the growth rate in Moore's Law and, and asserted that it was slowing over, the, over history. Future is a different story, but over history. Um, I think actually that picture is much less compelling when you look at it in the levels terms. Um, I've seen both versions. And what you really see are a bunch of dots that kind of float above and float below. Um, a trend line that looks essentially constant over the entire period that Bob showed you. So I think uh, if you actually looked at the underlying data, it would be a lot less compelling. What I'm showing here is a different and really more basic measure of technology cycles in semiconductors, uh, which is what's used in the industry to measure um, how fast technology is progressing. And that's the amount of time that's needed to shrink the feature size, the minimum feature size of a component on the chip by 30%. Um, it's that shrinkage that's generating, uh, that's largely behind Moore's law. And so what you see here um, is that that, that cycle time uh, had been about three years up to the mid-1990s. And then since then, it's been about two years. This, this speed up in, in semiconductor technology is a, is a phenomenon that Dale actually brought to the attention of the profession more than a decade ago. Um, and it's still in place. So from a purely technological perspective, looking backward, there really has not been a change in the underlying trends. What's perhaps more important is what's happening to the performance of um, uh, these chips as perceived by users when they use them in computers to do normal things. 
And so the blue line here is a measure of performance. It's related to, but not the same as the performance line that, that Dale showed. I mean, I, I read the footnote as Dale was um, doing his presentation. His line bends down a little more than this blue line because it does not take account at all of the, of the move toward multi-core chips. It's about what you can you do with a chip that has just one core, no parallel processing. Well, of course, chips today have two, four, eight cores. So the whole processing environment has to take account of that parallelization. The blue line here does. So what you can see is that, yes, there has been some slowing in the rate of improvement in um, computing performance as perceived by end users, but it's still rising at something like a 30% rate per year. The red line in comparison is the clock speed of the, of the MPUs. These are, again, uh, desktop Intel MPUs. It stopped rising in 2004. This is pretty well known. This is a result of heat generation problems of trying to pack so many um, features so close. And so what happened is that clock speed stopped rising, but Intel innovated in many other ways that allowed performance to continue to increase. Multi-core chips is one of them, but more general changes in chip architecture are as well. This will be important, this distinction, um, in something i show you in a moment. So now let me get to the, really the heart of the measurement problem. So what I'm, what I'm showing here um, are data from Intel on their list prices for MPU chips for desktops for two different periods of time. The first is two years, 2000 to 2001. The second is 2011 to 2012. And what you see in the early period is kind of what you would expect in the normal price cascade. A chip enters at a high price. Price falls as it has to compete against new chips that are more powerful at lower quality adjusted prices, and it eventually exits at a relatively low price. When you get to 2011 and 2012, picture is completely different. These list prices almost never change. Chip comes in at a given price. It stays there. There's a little bit of decline, which is hard to see on the scale. But basically, these prices are flat. Now, you can speculate as to what happened. We do in the paper, but it's only speculation. Intel has a lot more market power in 2011, 2012 than they had in the early period. They basically vanquished their main competitor, AMD through a combination of improved technology and strong arm tactics. But by 2011, 2012, they are the dominant producer. They have a lot of market power. They can set prices wherever they want to enlist and then discount on a very much price discriminating basis. The reason I'm going through all of this is that the producer price index, which is our measure of semiconductor prices, is based on match model tech method. So the match model method just says, Take a chip that existed in one period and the next period and see what happened to its price. Average those changes for individual chips, and that's your measure of price change. Well, in 2000, 2001, when we had the price cascade, of course, that will measure prices have been falling a lot. In 2011, 2012, when there's no cascade anymore, of course, it's going to measure the prices aren't falling anymore based on these list prices. So what's happening in the PPI is basically baked in to the fact that Intel no longer drops list prices for old models. So that suggests that the match model methodology is not going to work well. So what we did in our paper is to actually estimate hedonic indexes of chip prices um, using prices. We, we focus on prices at the beginning of the life cycle because we just don't trust these older list prices. The, 
list prices that are later in the age range. And we use um, measures of performance to control for quality. And so what do we get? Well, we find in, on the first line of this table that uh, using that hedonic approach with a good measure of uh, performance to control for quality, uh, chip prices are falling at still like roughly 50% per year, which is really not very different than how fast they were falling um, before 2004. The PPI, which is the last line, in contrast, has shown this steady trend toward price declines that are really very, very slow. The middle line um, says, well, do the hedonics, but don't control with measures of performance, but rather just for technical characteristics, which is normally the way that hedonics are done. But one of the key controls for, for uh, characteristics is the clock speed. And we know the clock speed stopped rising. So um, even though performance continued to improve. So that gets translated in the regression into quality is not rising very much. Therefore, prices on a quality adjusted basis aren't falling very much. So I, I think there's really very significant doubt about what's being done in the PPI these days. So to sum up this part of the talk, um, we, we have grave doubts about uh, the PPI. And we really do think that prices for this key component of the high-tech sector are still falling very, very rapidly. Now, given that, it's not at all clear why computer prices, which should reflect the price of the underlying embedded electronics, shouldn't be falling fairly rapidly as well. And we have work that we're doing, uh, going to be getting started on very soon to actually take a look, very close look at the BEA computer price index. But I can tell you, based on what we know now, there are a lot of problems with that index. And they aren't... Um, it's not just one or two things, but we have some very significant doubts about the accuracy there as well. Now, be before I finish the section, let me just say I, I'm not trying to bash the statistical agencies. I mean, I was at one for many years. I think they're doing the best they can with extremely limited budgets, but this is an area where we really do need more resources. So looking to um, the final part of the talk, which is about the outlook. Thanks. Um, we, uh, in our work, do a steady state analysis of future productivity growth. It's very similar to what John does. Um, and I won't go through all the details here, because the results are basically the same. If you feed in historically average values for the parameters, the model spits out historically average value for productivity growth. It's, it's basically a calculation machine. It's not really a forecast. It's more useful, I think, as a, as a what if kind of exercise. So that's what I'm going to talk about. Um, so when we feed in the average of history, we get a steady state growth rate of productivity of about 1.8%, which is roughly the average back to the early 1970s. So then we thought, well, let's try an alternative to see what it would take to actually get strong growth again in productivity. So we feed in assumptions that have faster, somewhat faster declines in the um, IT capital goods than in the baseline, um, not going back to the second half of the 90s, but maybe about halfway. And then with those faster declines in prices, you would get uh, faster adoption of new technology, which would raise multi-factor productivity growth in the rest of the business sector. And again, we go back um, and assume that there's growth in that 
large part of the economy and multi-factor productivity that's kind of halfway in between. But importantly, all of the parameters remain at baseline values, which means we, we continue to embed Dale's important point about demographics and about um, very little future improvement in educational attainment. And we continue to embed the fact that the IT producing sector in the United States is now very, very small. So that, that part of the economy, which had generated a lot of productivity growth now, is very small. We've, we've really exported a lot of that productivity elsewhere. So when you do that and then you turn the crank, with some not outlandish assumptions, you can get labor productivity growth of about 2.5%. So in our view, this is a, an illustration illustration of the fact that you don't have to work tremendously hard to get productivity growth back up to a relatively robust pace. Um, and in particular, I think what it says is that even though we're focusing on whether we'll have a repeat of the second half of the 90s, you don't really need a repeat of the second half of the 90s. Just having half a loaf would be really, really good. Um, here I've just arrayed some forecasts of productivity growth from some of the people who are here, John, um, Bob, the Congressional Budget Office, a few other forecasters. I think it's interesting. Um, this is for labor, non-farm business, non-farm business. So I converted, I talked to Bob. I converted Bob's 1.2% to 1.6. 1.2% for total economy, 1.6% non-farm business. These are all non-farm business or private business in the case of John's. Um, and they're over varying horizons that range from five years to undefined. I mean, a steady state model doesn't really have a defined horizon. But um, interestingly, the range isn't very wide. Bob is at the bottom of the range at 1.6% on this basis, but there aren't any numbers above two. So you get the sense that there's a strong confluence of views in the profession, despite the very uh, fiery rhetoric. But, but I think what we're seeing here really is that there's a lot of hurting in the face of massive uncertainty. Um, and John talked about the huge standard errors on the forecasts. Um, the only forecast here that actually has a statistically based standard error is the one from Kahn and Rich. And they're 75% confidence interval, not 90 or 95%, but 75% for what growth of productivity will be five years from now runs from zero to 4% on an annual rate. <laughs> it means we just don't know anything. So let me, uh, I have two more slides uh, that I think vividly make the point that we're bad at forecasting. So what I've shown here is the sequence of 10-year-ahead uh, forecasts of labor productivity growth starting in 1992 and running up to this year made uh, by the forecasters that participate in the survey of professional forecasters. There are about 50 forecasts that get aggregated here on average. Great, thanks. So what you can see is that starting in the early 90s, the forecasts of 10-year-ahead productivity growth were 1.5% in 1992, 1.5% again the next year, basically 1.5% or worse in every year up through 1998 and basically no increase in 1999. However, the productivity boom started in 1995. That's what I'm trying to show with the arrow. So not only was there no anticipation of what was going to happen, there wasn't even a recognition that it had happened until roughly four years later. Now, part of that is that the data got revised a lot. That, that is part of the problem. We don't even know where we are today with any con, uh, considerable degree of certainty because the data get revised a lot. And then on the slowdown, um, looking in the middle of the chart, which we now know started in about 2004, um, the forecast in 2004 productivity for the coming 10 years was still 2.5%. In 2005, it was 2.5%. In 
In 2006, it was just a shade below that. Well, actual productivity growth since then has been about a percent and a half. So again, it wasn't anticipated, and there was only a lagged recognition of what was happening. This is the same chart for the CBO. It makes the same point, but in the interest of time, I'll, I'll skip it. So let me just conclude. Um, on my first question, yes, there is a strong consensus that IT has been very central in both the productivity pickup in the mid-90s and the slowdown since then. Um, I think the outlook for productivity growth is really, really uncertain uh, based on the fact that uh, we just are bad at predicting the future, and particularly when we're trying to predict breaks in trends. Um, so my view is that confident predictions should be taken with a lot of skepticism. That said, um, I, I do think that a positive development is that the semiconductor sector has continued to advance rapidly. And properly measured, I think those prices that feed into IT capital goods are continuing to fall at a rapid rate. So I think the underlying conditions are in place for a second wave of the IT revolution. But whether that wave materializes, we don't know. And I really don't think we have a good basis for predicting. Thank you. Thank you very much. Time for a couple questions. Again, please uh, raise your hand. A mic will come, and please state your name and affiliation. Uh, start with Martin. Uh, I have a question for Eric. Eric, you know uh, Silicon Valley much better than I, but uh, the, the buzz I have heard is that a lot of uh, technology companies uh, see a lot of innovation potential, but don't see how to monetize that potential. Now, you're d describing things that probably would be monetized, but I, uh, this is with the exception of Google. Google sort of does R&D <laughs> on whatever <laughs> they want, um, and they don't care that much whether it, whether it pays off, although yep. initially they don't. Uh, but other companies are much more cautious. They want to see that 10 to 15% rate of return, yep. and uh, they're, not, they're not doing so. Do you agree with that, or do you want to comment on that? Uh I do largely agree with that. And I think it's a great point one I didn't have a chance to, to touch on, but I've written about before, is that you know, as the economy becomes more digital, um, you get a lot of consumer surplus that doesn't necessarily show up in productivity. Uh, by one might Yeah, absolutely. By one measure, it's, it's hundreds of billions of dollars a year um, that we're not capturing. I had a little brief conversation with Brad just beforehand that, that maybe there's something, you know, that you could do this more formally as, as a systematic difference between those kinds of goods versus other kinds of goods, uh, he was pointing out. Um, but I think that's exactly right. Um, it's, I think, a big irony of the information age that in some ways we have less and less information about the real welfare and the real sources, sources of value than we did before as things become more digitized. It may be that we could reinvent our statistical agencies to use some of the big data and the very fine-grained data that is now available that wasn't available before, just as, as businesses need to reinvent themselves as well. But that, that's a key point, and it, it's, uh, it would... It, 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 underscores some of the other points I was making. Here, the front. Hello, uh, Lotta Moberg at George Mason University. I have a question for Mr. Brynjolfsson. You mentioned the difference between the rise in productivity and the flattening out of the median income. Mm -hmm. I'm, I wonder whether you, um, what you, do you think most best explains this divergence? So I could write a book on that. <laughs> there's a, there's a, I think what's going on is that there are a number of things. There's globalization, some changes in institutional policy, but the, by far the biggest one, in my view, is, is technological change. There's no economic law that says that technological change is going to be a rising boat that lifts all 
rising tide that lives all, lifts all boats, easy for me to say. Um, so um, for the much of history since the Industrial Revolution, it, it was something that everyone benefited from, but it's also possible for technology to benefit some groups versus others. There can be skill bias, technical change, and many different skills. It's not just one dimension. There can be capital and labor bias, capital bias, technical change. We, there's something called superstar bias, technical change that we talk about where, where certain winners can replicate their talents or their luck tremendously and get big benefits. All of those, I think, play a role. But also, I should say, none of them are inevitable. Um, I think that it's possible that we can make some organizational, some institutional changes, changes in, in copyright, tax policy, other things that, that uh, uh, shift, shift the income distribution. So I think we have time for a couple more. Uh, we'll go to John in front, and then the gentleman in the back in the middle. Yeah, I wanted to hear, uh, John Farnold. I wanted to hear a little more from the panelists about a, a point that came up, especially by Eric, uh, but I think is implicit in some other things, about the complementarity between, or substitutability between machines and people. Uh, and, uh, and what does the future hold for that? And how can we best uh, maybe promote a complementarities between what people do well and what machines do well? Someone else? I mean, this is really their, their bailiwick, but I mean, I, I think education is key. I mean, um, that's really the only way we're going to deal with the income uh, inequality issues that we're talking about. It has to be through better education, better training that's widely dispersed throughout the economy. I mean, they're, they're just large sections of the populace that's, that's falling behind and, and are really ill-served. There was a question. Actually, I agree with education. The, the other thing, I think actually entrepreneurship is another thing that we could help direct technical change. And there may be ways we can provide incentives for uh, innovations that are uh, more complementary to labor and as opposed to just substituting. An entrepreneur may not care about that unless you put some, some your, your thumb on the scale a little bit. Please go uh, ahead. About education, I'm a little bit more skeptical because at the moment we have about 40% of our college graduates going into jobs that do not require a college education, mm -hmm. together with a, a very widespread shortage of high-skilled blue-collar workers, uh, resulting in part from the fact that parents don't want their kids to go into blue-collar work. They want them to go to college. And the, uh, the anecdotes abound, uh, led by my favorite anecdote of a 19-year-old who works as an auto mechanic making $45,000 a year, which is the average median wage of adult males, uh, and he's only 19. Such is the shortage of auto mechanics in the place that he lives. Uh, and I would hearken back to the question about Germany in the previous session. Uh, we need a much better defined channel uh, to get people into apprenticeship type of uh, career paths. Thank you. Okay, so the last question, the gentleman in the middle at the back, can someone get him a mic, please? Now he has two. Uh, Petrovsky, Voice and Noise Foundation. I just had a question about how much catch up does humanity need to this new information revolution? Uh, I just came back from observing my granddaughter, three years old, and the way she interacts is dramatically different from my daughter, how my daughter interacted with that. It, it, there is no education needed. She's already educated so much more in those three years than the other one has been educated for 33 years. So, so how much can we really measure what's going on underneath in trying to 
learn. We just, just saw the first event here was the interruption in the technology affair that we didn't know how the buttons. That will not happen to my grand granddaughter. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone want to tackle that? I like those guys. I mean, I. I you're absolutely right. I mean, <laughs> what can I say? My kids are in their 20s. Uh, they, they run circles around me. And, you know, a three-year-old is going to run circles around them in terms of adapt adaptability to the new technology. But I, I think we could actually go a long way, and this is a point that I think echoes something that Eric said, by just greater diffusion of existing technology. Um, you don't need to be very technologically savvy, for example, to use an iPad that is enabled with a lot smarter applications. Um, so I think we have a long way to run without um, actually dealing, with, getting into the issue that you've talked about, which is an important issue, but I think we have a long way to run without it. Just, so, so I think that just briefly underscore, let me just uh, underscore another point, which is that the, the types of skills that are increasingly important aren't necessarily the same ones that are being taught in schools, and in this, or at least the traditional kinds of schools. There's a whole different set of schools, skills, often involving creativity and interpersonal skills, not just computer skills, that m machines aren't very good at, at least currently. And that's maybe what we should be thinking about is those other kinds of skills. So I think we have to wrap it there, unfortunately. Um, quick announcement. Lunch is going to be on the second floor. There will be additional restrooms on your way to the uh, Jaeger Conference Center on the second floor. So let me thank the panelists again for a great session. Thank you for coming. Thank you.